Well, if you have a if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn uh, with me to Philippians chapter one, Philippians one, and uh, I'll read from verse twelve, Philippians one, uh, verse twelve. I just want to uh, really. Um, speak on a few of these key texts in the book of Philippians for a bit so Philippians 1 uh, I've kind of jumped over a section that we could have in theory looked at um, having looked at the first section uh, last time and then having looked at the founding of the church the time before that and uh, today I, I want to try and look at um, at verses 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, Philippians 1.12, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare uh, all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Philippians 1, 12 to 18. Just a prayer, Lord, as we focus our minds on this great text of Scripture. Uh, we ask for your help and we pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we uh, endeavor to understand the truth that is in front of us. And we pray, Lord, that you'll speak into our lives in, in a way that matters and in a way that is real and in a way that is relevant. And we pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Romans chapter 1 verse 11, that great uh, epistle letter that Paul wrote uh, to the Roman Christians, uh, probably from Corinth, um, he said that he longed to go to the city of Rome, so he hadn't yet been taken as a prisoner. He still actively involved in missionary uh, activity. He, he hasn't yet visited Rome, but he's aware of the church there. And, uh, of course, there were a few people in the church at Corinth who had connections with the church at Rome. Um, and... Uh, 
he, Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, for instance, were expelled from Rome and they were with him when he founded the church in, in Corinth. And so as, uh, he wrote a letter back to the church at Rome, even though he had never been there. And he said to them that he longed to meet them, he longed to visit them, he longed to go to uh, the imperial city to spend a bit of time with them as, uh, as brothers and sisters in the family of faith. He obviously understood alongside just wanting to enjoy fellowship with the Christians in Rome, he also understood the importance of proclaiming the gospel at the very heart of uh, the Roman Empire. Of course, Rome is its capital. The orders that uh, are disseminated throughout the empire, they all begin in Rome. Soldiers that are serving in the legions must all sign up in Rome and then they'll be sent uh, to various places like Hadrian's Wall where they'll be fighting the picks and keeping them out of the empire. So he obviously understands the importance of Rome in terms of uh, a place where the gospel should be preached. In many senses, Rome was the gateway to the world. People flocked to Rome and they went out from Rome to all arts and parts of the empire. And God eventually fulfilled the dream that uh, Paul gave expression to in Romans chapter 1 verse 11. And he eventually did come to Rome, but not in the way that he intended. Uh, Paul arrived in Rome as a prisoner. Uh, to be tried by none other than Caesar himself. And one of the reasons that he wrote this letter to the Philippians uh, was to bring them up to date with his circumstances. I've already mentioned that the church in Philippi had huge interest in Paul. So when he moved on from Philippi, Acts 16, uh, he went to Thessalonica and ran into difficulty there. And the church at Philippi had sent a gift uh, either with him or to him. And then they sent another gift when he was down in Corinth. And so this is a church, Philippi is a church that they've taken a huge interest in Paul and his missionary endeavors and his travels. And, and uh, they've invested in his ministry. And when they heard that he had been arrested in Jerusalem and that he had been brought to Rome as a prisoner, they, they obviously were concerned, deeply concerned. So much concerned, actually, that they dispatched one of their members, a man called Epaphroditus, and sent him to Rome to see if there was anything that, that he could do for Paul. Buy him food, because you didn't get food from the canteen in those days in a Roman prison. Or, or buy him supplies so that he could write and communicate with churches they dispatched one of their members Epaphroditus to see if there was something that he could do interestingly Epaphroditus on his way to Rome fell sick and uh, there hadn't been any word about either Epaphroditus or Paul from the church at Philippi for a long time. And so they were obviously concerned, really concerned. You can imagine what it would be like if, if you had sent a missionary to somewhere like... Uh, or if you had heard that one of your missionaries had been arrested in China and was imprisoned in China... You'd be concerned about the well-being of that missionary. And if you dispatched one of your 
members, one of the folks who attend here, to go out and see how it was getting on, how he was get, how those missionaries were getting on, and you hadn't heard any word back from either of the two of them, you'd be really anxious and, and really w- worried. Um, Paul knew that the Philippians would be anxious and he wasted no time then when Epaphroditus did uh, arrive he wasted no time whatsoever in uh, writing this letter back to them he wanted uh, them to know that he was fine he wanted them to know that despite the news that they'd heard that he was in prison that it was still within God's control and that God was still on the throne and he wanted to address some of the problems that he is aware of uh, in, in this church so here he is languishing in prison and uh, he's concerned about the Philippians the Philippian church and he's concerned about their concern for him and he's concerned that they're anxious and uh, he's concerned about some of the issues that he has heard about uh, brewing in this church some of the difficult people and some of the divisions that have erupted and he wants to address that and I find that hugely uh, challenging he's languishing in a stinking jail he's been snatched from his life's work and calling he has no idea how this trial that he is uh, involved in will end will he be executed or will he be set free but here he is in the middle of all of that thinking about the Philippians yet doesn't that remind you of someone doesn't it remind you a little bit of Jesus Remember when, on the night that he was betrayed, he took his disciples into that upper room. And remember what he said to them. He said, let not your heart be troubled. He's the one that's going out to face the cross. He is the one that is about to be made sin for us. He's the one that's about to be set upon by the mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet he says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many places of abode. And if it were not so, I would have told you. Look at Jesus when he's hanging on the cross. Hanging on the cross, he looks down and there he sees his mother and he commits her. To the care of John because that's Jesus in the midst of his own pain and suffering. He's concerned about the well-being of others. When he saw the blindness of those who were crucifying him with his prayers, he asks the Father to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And so Paul reflects something of Jesus here in his own life and in his circumstances. And he'll tell the church in Philippi to do this a little bit later in his letter. Chapter 2 verse 4 he'll say, Let each of you look out not just for your own interests, but also for the interests of, of others. And he models that. He models it. As well as writing about it, he models the way of life that he wants them to emulate. And I find that so, uh, such a powerful challenge in, in the book of Philippians. Again and again I've seen, I, I, I've noticed that he not only tells them what to do, he models for them what they should do. Like, here's a really interesting little detail. At the beginning of Philippians, he does not introduce himself as the Apostle Paul. Now he does when he's writing to the Galatians. He does when he's writing to the Romans. But not when he's writing to the Philippians. He just introduces himself as Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
Because one of the issues in the church at Philippi was the issue of pride. People were infatuated with themselves, in love with themselves. And he wants people to follow the example of Jesus, who was willing to pick up the the mantle of servanthood. Who was willing to become the servant of all. And he wants them to follow that example. So he not only preaches about humility, he models it. There's no waving of this apostolic flag in Philippians. He's just Paul along with his colleague Timothy and together they're just servants of Jesus. And uh, here we see him reflecting Jesus again and uh, reflecting Jesus in his concern for them as a church as he writes this letter to them. Well, a couple of things that I'm going to try and pull out of this text. I want you first of all to think with me about uh, the providence, the providence of God. He begins in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now when he says brothers, he's not excluding sisters. He means brothers and sisters. Uh, It's a term that is used to refer to both uh, brothers and sisters in the family of Christ. So he says, what has happened to me, brothers and sisters, has really served to advance the gospel. So we begin by asking the question, well, what has happened to you? Has something really wonderful happened to you? Has your circumstances in Rome completely turned around? Have you been acquitted of of the charges that were leveled against you? Are you now free to wander the streets of Rome and preach the gospel without any restrictions? Has, Has the emperor allowed you onto his balcony to preach to the crowds below? What has happened to you that has really served to advance the gospel? The truth is, none of these things and... Nothing of this nature had happened to the Apostle Paul. You can find out what what has happened to Paul at the end of the book of Acts. He arrived in Jerusalem. He had collected some money for brothers and sisters in Jerusalem from the churches in uh, Macedonia and uh, down there in Achaia or Greece as we would refer to it and, and Asia where Ephesus is. He'd gathered some money up from all of these churches and taken it to Jerusalem to give to the poor believers there. And when he got to Jerusalem, there were some Jews in town, Jewish pilgrims from Ephesus in Jerusalem. And they noticed Paul. And they detested Paul. And they remembered the trouble that he had caused in Ephesus. And what they did was they stirred up the Jewish authorities against Paul and told them that he was some kind of Egyptian renegade or Egyptian terrorist and you better arrest him and he was arrested in the temple uh, courts by the Jews first of all he was almost lynched there and then only the Roman soldiers who were looking down onto the temple courts could see what was happening and uh, somebody came some of the soldiers came to his rescue he, he was transferred from there to Caesarea Caesarea Maritima along the coast and he spent two years in prison in Caesarea and there's no record of any letters coming from his prison cell when he was in, in, in Caesarea. Two years he spent in prison there. And uh, he was first of all under a man called, um, uh, uh, under a man called Felix. He had occasion to preach to Felix and Felix often sat and trembled as he listened to the Apostle Paul. And then Felix was replaced by a man called Festus. 
And Festus was going to hand Paul over to the Ro- to the Jews who would have killed him. And then Paul appealed to Caesar. So he, went, he was taken off to Rome to be tried under Caesar. On the way to Rome, as a prisoner, they were shipwrecked off the island of Malta. And they, he swam to the shore and he had to spend the whole winter on the island of Malta. And then eventually in the spring of AD 60, he arrives in Rome as a dejected prisoner, chained to a Roman soldier, held under house arrest for two years, allowed to receive guests, but allowed no freedom beyond that. That's what has happened to Paul. And he says to us, uh, he says to us that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. All of this stuff, all of this imprisonment in Caesarea, now this imprisonment in Rome, all of this has served to advance the gospel. There's no complaints, there's no why me, there's no why now, there's no why this. Paul believed that God was still in control and he believed that although he struggled to make sense of it at times, he believed that God was working out his plan. And in verse 13 he tells us how God's plan has been unfolding. He says the whole palace guard has become aware of uh, my case, that I've been imprisoned for Christ. Uh, The whole palace guard have become aware of my circumstances. So the palace guard, sometimes translated the Praetorian guard, were a hand-picked group of soldiers who served the emperor. They were like a special unit. I don't know what the equivalent would be in the British Army, maybe the SAS or something like that. But they were a specially chosen group of soldiers that were the inner circle as far as the emperor was concerned. And when prisoners uh, who were to be tried under Caesar arrived in town, this group of soldiers were given the responsibility of minding them. And, And Paul's under house arrest. Which means that he is chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And they're on a cycle of, a, of six hour shifts. So every six hours, two soldiers come in and two soldiers go out. And so you, you don't need much of an imagination to think about the Apostle Paul. Can't you see him smiling wryly as they come in, two of them, for a six hour shift? And after about 15 minutes, he says to them, have you ever heard about Jesus? They said, no, we've never heard about Jesus. Oh, he says, we've got about 5 hours and 45 minutes to go, so I'll just tell you all about Jesus. And then they came, two by two, to the Apostle Paul, and they heard him speak to those who would visit him, and, and, and they heard him pray. Let's just pray before you go, he would say to his visitors. And he would pray, Lord, thank you for bringing me here. And and thank you that this man that I'm chained to has been given the opportunity to witness our conversation. And thank you for the opportunity to share the good news with this soldier. And two by two, they were just getting it hot and heavy, six hours at a time. And Paul writes to the Philippians and he says to them, he says, uh, you know, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Because uh, there's no way that I would have had an opportunity to speak to the emperor's inner circle in the way that I have in these last few days. This is a God-given opportunity. God sometimes looks... And he sees that he needs to put his people in prison to 
witness to those on the inside. And, and not just as we had somebody from Shots Prison there not so long ago come speak to the students. Uh, not simply that we'll go in on a Sunday and uh, hold a service and then come out again later that afternoon. No, sometimes God actually puts his people in there and they stay in there. And that's what's happening here. Paul's writing to the to 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 these uh, Philippians, and he says, "Listen, I know that you've heard troubling news. I know that you're really concerned about me. I know that you're worried about me. But I, I just want you to know that God's got it all in hand. Don't panic. God's working out His purposes. I'm having opportunities that I wouldn't otherwise have, and people are being converted. And and why would we be surprised at that?" You know, if, if that happened today, most people would be saying, oh, this is an attack of the enemy. No, this is a providence of God. God is in control of this. This is all working out in the plan and purposes of God. Because people are being converted that wouldn't otherwise be converted. We know that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I don't know who you are today, and I don't know anything about your circumstances. But on the basis of this story which unfolds here, I want you to know that however dark your circumstances, and however difficult they might be, God has not forgotten you. And God's promises are no less true in relation to your circumstances than they are to Paul's circumstances. And somehow, even though it's difficult to understand why God would take this, you know, this great apologist, this great theologian, this great preacher, and lock him up for two years. Four years in total, but two years in Caesarea where nothing would come from him. It's difficult to understand why in the world God would do that. But we must trust God's ways are not our ways, and God's ways ultimately are best. Well, that's the providence. What about the prison? Let me say a couple of things about that. Prisons were not pleasant places to spend time in. Certainly Roman prisons were not pleasant places to spend time in. I I think, I I felt rebuked recently, I, I, I... I think I feel, I used to think that prisons now were a bit of a holiday camp. But prisons now are not a holiday camp. Having listened to that lady from Shorts recently, I felt really rebuked and I felt I wasn't being really fair. It's a difficult world, prison. And Paul finds himself in prison in the first century and he could have had a huge pity party. He could have sat back and done absolutely nothing. But he viewed his surroundings, his new surroundings, as the place where he should serve Jesus. And he realized that God was giving him opportunities that he wouldn't otherwise have. And he used his circumstances to serve the Lord and to witness to others. Now, I find that hugely challenging. Whatever our circumstances, wherever God places us, that's the place where God wants us to serve him. And it's our duty to roll up our sleeves and begin to serve him in that context. Just because he was in jail didn't mean that he had an opportunity to stop serving and stop witnessing. He may not have been able to preach on the streets, but he could, and he may not have been able to visit towns and plant churches, but he could write letters and he could witness to soldiers. 
And that's exactly what he did. He continued to serve the Lord by doing these things as God gave him opportunity to do so. And I think we ought to follow Paul's example wherever God sets us. Whatever our circumstances, God wants us to serve him there. He wants us to witness for him there. There's always something that we can do. Always. There is always something that we can do for Jesus, no matter what our circumstances are. There's surely always someone that can come under the influence of the gospel through our witness. There is always someone who needs encouraged. There is always some demonstration of the loveliness of Jesus that can be lived out in front of others, no matter what our circumstances are. Whatever our circumstances, we might find ourselves... Whatever the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we need to serve God in them. You know, sometimes mothers feel like they're in a bit of a prison. They feel like they're in a prison because they're so busy minding children. And they feel like, what does God want me to do here? I feel like I can't do anything for God because all I ever do is just spend my life with these children. Susanna Wesley had 19 children before there was such a thing as pain relief or throwaway or disposable nappies. If ever there was a woman in chains, it was surely her 19 children. Yet from her home came two young men who left a mark on this world that lingers right through to today and will continue for years to come. And she understood that Wherever she was, that was the place where she was to serve Jesus. And she did what she could to witness to her boys and to her sons and daughters. And and Charles and John came and preached the gospel in this country and revolutionized it. People think, well, I can't do much for God because I've got a disability. Fanny Crosby was blinded at the age of six weeks. Yet she was determined not to allow her chains of darkness to hold her. And through her many wonderful hymns, she has brought the light of the gospel to many, many people. Joni Erickson became a quadriplegic when she was a teenager. And could have said to herself, that's it. I can't do anything for God now. That's it. It's all over. I'm done. But she realizes, wherever God places you, and whatever your circumstances There's surely something that you can do for God. I better get on with it and do whatever it is God wants me to do. And what an amazing witness she has been in in this past uh, couple of decades. Wherever God places us, whether it's in a prison, whether it's in our homes, whether it's just caring for our grandchildren, whatever our circumstances, God has got something for us to do, hasn't he? Well, here's the third thing then, uh, just two more and then we're finished. The people. As a result of Paul's imprisonment, many people became enthused in their witness for Jesus. Now, I'm not sure why people became so fired up by the fact that Paul had been imprisoned. Why they were so encouraged to become bolder in their witnessing for, for Jesus. Maybe some of them felt Paul's being unfairly treated. And uh, if this is how they're going to treat one of us, then we'll all stand together with him. And, and they responded in kind. Maybe some of them felt that Paul hadn't been treated too badly. And, and maybe they felt, well, if this is the worst that they'll do to us, it's not that bad. 
I could face that and, and maybe they became bolder in their witness for Jesus because they realized how God had been sustaining and helping Paul. But you know what, I, I, think that, I, I think that some of them had become inspired by Paul's example. They saw the commitment of Paul to Christ. They saw his willingness to languish in prison for two years and never flinch in his dedication to Christ. And I think they saw in Paul what a Christian should be. And, and they rose to become the people that they knew God wanted them to be. I think they were inspired by the example of Paul. And he tells us, that because he's been in prison some people have become bolder in their faith in 1564 George Wishart was condemned to heresy his only heresy was his belief in the gospel of a saving Christ but that that year he was burned at the stake at the foot of the castle wind in St Andrews and before he was executed George Wishart went over and kissed his executioner and uh, on the cheek and assured him of his forgiveness and you can read the story it's a very powerful story come close to me he says and he kisses him on the cheek and he says there is a token of my forgiveness go now and do what you must do and uh, of course the faggots were lit and he was burnt uh, to a cinder there was a young man standing in the crowd watching George Wishart being burnt at the stake that day And God lit a flame in that young man's heart that never went out until the day he died. Do you know who that young man was? John Knox. And it was as he stood and watched George Wishart burn at the stake, he resolved in his heart that he would light a flame in Scotland that would never be extinguished by God's grace. See, sometimes our suffering... We haven't got much of a theology of suffering. But sometimes our suffering inspires others because they see what God can do and what God will do. And they believe that maybe God could do that for them. See, we we definitely live in an age where there's no theology of suffering. On one extreme You've got people who deny hell because they couldn't conceive of a God who would allow that kind of suffering. On the other extreme, you've got people who will claim that God will only give you good things and never allow you to suffer bad things. Just wealth and all kinds of things. And and that's the kind of Christendom that we have. Because we've got no theology of suffering. But here Paul is saying uh, to these uh, Philippians, he says, listen, let me tell you, what has happened to me has actually caused others to get fired up for Jesus. And they're taking their stand more boldly. And and, uh, we need to live out our Christian faith in the hardships of life so that we might inspire others. And the fourth thing is the problem. He says, not only are some fired up, but he says, some are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, and some of them out of selfish ambition. Their intention, it would appear, was to add affliction to Paul. They wanted somehow to make things worse for him. So they were preaching Christ out of a... A weird motive. Let's preach Jesus more fervently and it will make things more difficult for Paul. Now, before we jump to too many conclusions about who they were and what was going on, we should just uh, ask a few questions. First of all, who were these offenders? Well, they were theologically sound. 
It wasn't that Paul was saying, I don't care what anyone preaches, people can just preach what they like, we should just embrace them. These people were theologically sound, they were preaching Christ. Christ was their message. So it's not just let's embrace everyone and anyone. It's let's let's embrace people who are Jesus people. And we know from other parts of Paul's writings that he didn't care much for people who didn't preach Jesus. Like the folks, in fact in this very book, Philippians, he will refer to people who come and impose Jewish laws on Gentile converts. You've got to stop eating pork and you've got to do all of these things. He refers to them as dogs mutilators of the flesh he's ruthless when people add to the message of Christ so whoever these offenders were they were theologically sound what was their offense their offense was that they were preaching Christ out of insincere motives they were still preaching Jesus but they had ulterior motives maybe some of them were jealous of Paul and his status and and maybe they, they, they wanted to be like him and maybe that was why they were preaching to get a name for themselves Uh, Maybe they were just jockeying for position. Maybe they wanted to stir up the authorities to make it even harder for Paul in prison. And maybe that's why they were preaching Christ. It's really difficult to know. But look at the reaction of Paul. He says, he tells us that he's happy that the gospel is being preached. He rejoices that the gospel is being preached. Because the power of the gospel does not depend on the character of the preacher. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't come with the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. It's the message of the gospel that transforms lives. It's not Robert Murdoch. And it's not Gordon Thompson. It's God's gospel that changes lives. And Paul is rejoicing that although these people are preaching Christ through an ulterior motive, he's nevertheless rejoicing that the gospel is being preached. Now, that's not a license for preachers to live as they please. Everyone will give an account to God. I'll one day stand before God and give an account of my ministry and my life. All of us will. But in this letter, Paul is merely making the point, listen, I'm not losing any sleep over the fact that I'm not everybody's blue-eyed boy. And that some people don't like me. What I rejoice is that the gospel is going forward and the gospel is advancing. And Paul's objective in life, it tells us a bit about Paul's objective in life. Paul's objective in life was not to lift himself up. Because if that was his objective, if if that was his priority, he'd have been sitting in prison feeling sorry for himself. These people are preaching Christ to make my life more difficult. He doesn't care about himself, he cares about Jesus. Nevertheless, I rejoice that Christ is being preached. Christ is being exalted. People are talking about Jesus and others are hearing about Jesus. And the message is having its own effect and people are being transformed by it. He wants... To tell people about Jesus and he wants others to hear about Jesus. And it reminds me of a a story of, I don't know if I've told you this story or not, but of two Americans who came over from the States to hear Spurgeon. And they heard, of course, about Parker, Bishop Parker in London, preaching at the same time. And they didn't know which of the two men to go and hear. 
So they decided, well, you go in here, Parker, and I'll go in here, Spurgeon. So one went one way, the other went the other way. They came back and they had lunch together. And the man who had been to hear Parker said, what a great preacher. And then the man who had been to hear Spurgeon said, what a great saviour. And, and in, in a sense, that's Paul. He doesn't want people to be focused on, what a great missionary. He wants people to be focused on, what a great saviour that missionary has. And here he is, and he says to the Philippians, listen, I'm, I'm not disturbed about the fact that these people are preaching Christ through an ulterior motive. What, what I rejoice about is that Jesus is being preached. So those were the four things. We thought about the providence. Some really dark things had happened to Paul. Yet he understands that it's all happening in God's providence and he must bow to that. And he's getting opportunities that he wouldn't otherwise get. Wouldn't otherwise get. I, I was speaking to a couple uh, a while ago who have a severely disabled son. And he was telling, the father was telling me in particular, he said, you know, the opportunities that, that, that our son has created for the gospel is just unbelievable. I, he, this person said, I couldn't even begin to tell you about the opportunities that have been created because of this. So there's the providence of God, difficult as it may be to understand at times, we must believe that somehow God is still working out his plan. There was the prison, strange place for God to put his key man. But in this prison, Paul realizes, I've got to serve Jesus here. And he gets on with it. And whatever your circumstances are, that's where you have to serve Jesus. Minding grandchildren, you feel it's a bit of a prison, you wish that you could do other things. Well, who knows what God will do with those grandchildren? First people to ever first person to ever pray with me was my grandmother. The only stable influence I had in my life when I was a, a youngster and my parents were divorcing was my grandparents. And the people who prayed me into the kingdom were my grandparents. And maybe they felt like they couldn't do much, but they served God faithfully as grandparents and my God was gracious and answered their prayer. Two types of people he mentions. He mentions people who are enthused because of the example that Paul is setting through his imprisonment. And then he talks about these other rascals who have become bolder and are preaching about Jesus to make life more difficult for Paul. Or at least seem to be some sort of ulterior strange motive in in, in proclaiming Jesus. To make somehow make things worse for, for Paul. And yet Paul rejoices that Jesus is being exalted because that's ultimately what he wants to be wants to be about. I don't know if you've met people like this in church life. I, I have. Two faced kind of people. Tongues a bit like a fork. You know? A neck which is a little bit like rubber. And and they may be sound people theologically, but there's something not just right about their motive. And Paul's encountering these people. And the other thing that it teaches me is that that not all, not all disagreements in Christian work should be viewed as opposition. Not all disagreements in Christian work should be viewed as opposition. I think that I, I was greatly spoken to about that from this passage once 
You know, just because people don't just quite see it my way or want to do it my way, doesn't mean it's opposition. These people passionate about Jesus, is the gospel advancing? And does it have to be my way? Couldn't I rejoice with them in the fact that the gospel is advancing? In the way that Paul did here, through even though these people were trying to make life more difficult for him. So those were the four things, and I hope that they were of some help to you. Just a prayer. Lord, sometimes in the journey of life, we look at providence and and your providence as it unfolds in our lives. And the truth is, Lord, we wish that it could be different. I've been in many circumstances where I wish that that those circumstances could have been, in fact, the very opposite to what they were. And Lord, when we can't understand you, help us somehow to trust you. Help us to believe, Lord, that when life seems chaotic, that you still have it in hand. In the way that Paul did in this passage. And Lord, wherever you set us, and whatever our circumstances, there's something for us to do for Jesus. Help us to see that and to do it. And Father, we pray that we will be a good example to others in the way that we handle suffering. And we pray that others might be encouraged that if God sustained us, that maybe, just maybe, that same God could sustain them. And we pray that you'll bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.